All right, well, good evening, everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 22? Genesis 22. The last time we saw Abraham and Isaac was in chapter 21. When Abraham threw a party for his son the day he was weaned. At that time, Isaac was roughly three years old. Now, many Jewish scholars believe that 30 years has passed from the end of chapter 21 to the beginning of chapter 22. Now, what happened during those 30 years, we're not told. But it's obvious that during those silent years, Abraham's faith has been growing. If we were to liken Abraham's faith to a mountain, well, Genesis 22 would be the summit. However, there's another much more important lesson being taught in Genesis 22 than just the growth of Abraham's faith, as important as that is. Jesus said in Psalm 40, verse 7, he said, The entire Old Testament is written about me. We would include the New Testament in that as well. But when Jesus said it uh, in Psalm 40, he said the, the volume of the book, we know it's the Old Testament at that time, the volume of the book is written about me, he said. Then in John 5, verse 39, he told the Pharisees, You search the scriptures, for in them... You think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The scriptures point to me. In every page, type, shadow, and so on. Genesis 22 is one of the greatest typological chapters in the Bible to demonstrate the truth that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. We're going to see that very clearly tonight. In fact, if you asked me to give you what I believe are the 10 most important chapters in the Bible, I would have to include Genesis chapter 22 as one of those chapters. And I think you'll see as we go through this, it's a pretty amazing chapter. Now, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass after these things, that will be after the things of chapter 21, about 30 years, as I said, it's past, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Guys, I think you all know that God's tests are never for his benefit. They're always for our benefit. To show us our areas of weakness, usually in places that we thought we were pretty strong. I think of Peter. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he said, Before the night is out, you're all going to deny me. Or he said, you're all going to forsake me uh, and flee. And uh, Peter said, Lord, uh, although these deny you, I will never deny you. And Jesus said, before the night is out, Peter, you will, have, you will have denied me three times. And I believe Peter was acting, uh, honestly, he was being sincere. He really believed that he was stronger than these other guys, that his love for Jesus, his commitment was such where he would never deny him. But the Lord had to point out to Peter that he was putting too much confidence in himself, and it was causing him to have pride, and pride blinds us to our true self. Pride sets us up for a fall because we're putting more strength in ourselves than we ought. In fact, we shouldn't be putting any strength in ourselves. It's kind of like the opposite of what Paul said in um, 2 Corinthians 12. He said, when I'm weak, then I am strong. When I'm not relying on my own strength, but relying on God's strength, that's when I'm really strong. However, Peter, and often we follow suit, you know, we think that you know, when we're strong, you know, well, when we're strong, we're weak. In fact, this very same Peter would go on to say in his first epistle how that God puts us through these trials, these tests. Yes, to show us what's in our own hearts. Because often we're blind. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We don't really know what's in our own hearts. We think we're doing a lot better in a given area than we really are. God sees that we're weak. But see, he can't begin to work on that area unless we see it for what it is and acknowledge it. All right? So Peter tells us that God often puts us through tests or trials to the fires of trials have a way of tempering our faith. In fact, he likened it to the goldsmith refining gold ore. The goldsmith takes the raw gold ore, puts it in a pot, and begins to heat it. As it heats, it melts, and of course, as it melts, the dross of the impurities flow to the surface. He then scrapes those off, keeps heating the gold. The impurities keep being released. He keeps scraping those off. He continues to do that until he can look into that pot of gold and see his reflection. When he can see his reflection, he knows it's pure, ready to be fashioned into whatever he wants to fashion it into. Well, Peter says our faith is much like that. God puts us through the fires of trials and it releases the impurities. It, it shows us what's in our hearts that we don't see, the, uh, the weaknesses, 
uh, areas of compromise, and so on. And this brings them to the surface, and God then says, see, these are things that were in your heart that you never even saw. Wow, Lord, I never realized that. I thought I, was, I, thought I, had, a, I had victory over my temper. Boy, today at work, you showed me I don't have victory at all. I, I, I just lost it. Or somebody cut me off in the road. I just went ballistic, all right? Uh, gosh, Lord, I guess I don't have this area. You know, it's not under the control of the Spirit yet. And God says, that's right. But I wanted to show you that because until you acknowledge it and come to me for my strength, I can't look into your life and see my reflection and use you then for what I really want to use you for. So it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Take your son, your only son Isaac. We read that and go, wait a minute. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Well, that's true. However, Ishmael was a work of the flesh. Sarah and Abraham decided to help God out. Okay, uh, Ishmael was a work of the flesh. Isaac was a work of the spirit. He was a miracle child, uh, the child of promise, the son of promise, the one that God told Abraham and Sarah he would give to them, but he waited until they were well past the age of childbearing, until they were dead reproductively, and then he gave them Isaac as a miracle. Isaac's birth was a miracle. It was a work of the spirit. The works of the flesh, God doesn't even acknowledge when it comes to our service for him. So a lot of people on the day of judgment, now Christians are going to stand before the Lord and be judged, but not in a, not in a punitive way. We're going to go before the Bema seat and have our rewards given to us. But they're going to be based on, did we do these things, first of all, for our own glory or for God's glory? And then secondly, did we do these things in the energy of our flesh or was it God-directed service that he gave us the, the grace and the power to do in his name? If it's God-directed and for God's glory, well, then we're going to be rewarded. But I'm, af I'm afraid that many Christians are going to come up to the Bema seat and walk away with a very little bit of rewards because uh, so much of what's going on in the church today is being done in the energy of the flesh. It was Tozer who said years ago, if you would have taken this, what the Spirit was doing out of the early church, 90% of what they were doing would have come to a stop. If you take the Holy Spirit out of the work of the church today, 10% of what the church is doing would come to a stop. Most of it's man-directed, man-centered for man's glory. And God is, doesn't even recognize it. Doesn't even recognize it. So from God's perspective, Abraham only had one son, Isaac, the son God promised to give him and Sarah miraculously in their old age. He says, now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. This is the first time the word love appears in the Bible. And notice it's not a speaking about the love of a man for a woman or a love of a woman for a man. It's speaking of the love of a father for his son. Yes, of course, Abraham's love for Isaac was in view, but the main focus here is the love of the father, God the father, for his son Jesus Christ. In fact, this whole chapter, guys, transcends Abraham and Isaac and is prophetic foreshadowing God the Father's sacrificing of his son, Jesus Christ, on Calvary. We'll see that as we go. So again, verse 2, he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Mount Moriah, guys, well, we know it as Golgotha or Calvary. The very same mount that 2,000 years later, another father would offer his only begotten son, whom he loved, for the sins of the world. The word Moriah in Hebrew means foreseen of Jehovah. Foreseen of Jehovah. In other words, guys, the cross was not some hastily uh, pasted together plan B after Adam blew it. Some people think God doesn't know the future. Some people teach this. God really doesn't know the future. So he's got to kind of adapt according to what we do. Oh, he did that. Oh, i got to move over here and run and do this now. That's absolutely ridiculous, as we're going to see in a moment. The cross was not plan B. It was the very plan of redemption that God had in place from the very beginning. You don't have to turn there, but Revelation 13, verse 8, tells us that Jesus was a lamb slain, listen, from the foundation of the world. 
Even before God created man, he already knew we were going to blow it. And the plan of redemption was already in place. In the mind of God, Jesus was already on Calvary's cross. Because God knew all things. He had already worked the plan of redemption into mankind before he ever even created us. Because he knew what was going to happen. Now, the Hebrew word translated offer in verse 2. Uh, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. The Hebrew word uh, translated offer is Allah in the Hebrew. And it means to lift up. To lift up. So God tells Abraham to lift Isaac up on Mount Moriah. Remember what Jesus said in John 12? He said, And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Then John added, This he said, signifying by what death he would die. We've studied Psalm 22 in the past. Psalm 22 is a psalm written by David a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet it's a psalm that is prophetic, where Jesus is really speaking through David while he's writing this psalm. Jesus is speaking through David while he's hanging on that cross. And of course, Psalm 22 begins with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, guys, there are times in our lives when God allows us to experience pain, sorrow, loss, affliction of some kind. And we're prone to cry out as we're going through these trials, these adversities, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, I'm crying all day long. It doesn't seem like you're listening. It's just things are getting worse and worse. Nothing's getting any better. And sometimes we believe that God maybe has forsaken us. But guys, look, this is Christianity 101. Let me just say it to you. You know it already. During those times, we need to get our eyes off of our circumstances. The devil loves to point to our circumstances and say to us, look, if God was real or if God really loved you, would he be letting you go through this trial? And if we listen to that and look at our circumstances, we might be prone to think God doesn't love us. But the Bible says that we must never judge God's character or his love for us based on our circumstances. I mean, did the father love the son? Of course he did. Did he let the son go to the cross? Of course he did. Because there was no other way for us to be saved. And sometimes there is no other way for God to touch others around us except by putting us through some of the same sufferings or trials that they may have experienced themselves it allows us to connect with them paul said in the first corinthians chapter excuse me second corinthians chapter one verses three to five he said when we go through trials and adversities and god comforts us we are then able to comfort those who are going through similar adversities with the same comfort that we ourselves were comforted by god so our trials allow us to reach a hurting world this is a very hurting world around us. People are hurting all over the place. And how are we going to be able to reach them for Jesus if we don't experience some of what they're going through? I told you a story, a true story. In fact, we, uh, to this day, we uh, support her ministry. But um, she was a young gal at the time, maybe 15 or 16 years old, lived in a very tough part of New York, I think Brooklyn, Bronx, something like that. Love the Lord strong Christian, one day she was coming home from school and a group of gangbangers jumped her and gang raped her. Brutal thing, horrible thing. But she was able to forgive them and pray for them. And the way she handled this whole situation caused her sister, who had gotten off into witchcraft, brought her back to the Lord. She eventually joined a ministry in Africa and found herself ministering to women who were routinely raped and some of them gang raped in their villages. And she was able to say to them, look, I've experienced what, you're going, what you've gone through. I myself was gang raped. It really opened the door for her to minister to these women. Now you say, well, I would never want that for my daughter. No, none of us would as parents. But nobody loves us more than our Heavenly Father. But he realizes that, look, we have given our hearts to him. We are his servants. And just like his son Jesus Christ had to suffer and die for us to be saved, sometimes we have to suffer and even are martyred. And God will use that to touch others around us. Jesus said, look, there's a cross involved in your faith. If you're not ready to pick up the cross, then you better, you better think twice. You better really think about what you're doing. I tell people when they say, oh, I'm going to pray to receive Jesus. Great. Do you really know what you're doing? Oh, yeah. What are you doing? Oh, I don't know. I'm just accepting him into my heart as my Savior. That's true. Are you prepared to give him control of your life? What do you mean? 
Well, he wants to be your savior, but that also includes being your Lord, the one who controls you, the one who governs your life. Are you willing to go wherever he leads? Are you willing to do whatever he says? It's no longer, I get to do what I want. It's now, Lord, you speak for your servant here. Whatever you have, will have me to do that, I will do. See, we have really gotten away from the true message of the cross in our 21st century American Christianity. The church has become very me-centered, self-focused. You know, many Christians really believe, they wouldn't maybe say it this way, but it really is all about them. It really is all about them. How the church is going to bless me, what God's going to do to, you know, take care of me and all kinds of things he's going to do for me. Very little about picking up the cross and following after, denying yourself and following after Jesus. So there are times when God allows us to suffer pain, affliction, sorrow, heartache, loss. We think maybe he's forsaken us, but at those times we need to focus not on our circumstances, but on the promises of God. Didn't Jesus say, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Didn't he say, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age? Didn't God say to the prophet Jeremiah, look, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. They are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. See, we have to remind ourselves of this when we're going through adversities. And we need to remember that, look, God is for me. He'll never be against me. He leads me in the right paths. Not necessarily the easiest paths, but the right paths for the work he's preparing me for. We must walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 2, then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, you read this and you can't help but wonder what must have been going through Abraham's mind at this moment. I mean, did he think, what? Lord, are you kidding? Is that really you, Lord? Is that the devil? You know, we're prone to think, can't be God. God would never say something like that. I mean, you know, but Abraham, he knew the voice of God. I'm convinced he knew this was God speaking. And I, I, I wonder if it was running through his mind, Lord, what are you talking about? This is the son you promised me. The one we waited 25 years for you to give us. And now you're telling me to kill him? Is this some kind of a sick joke? I don't know. There are people that think that. I know one thing, God doesn't play jokes on this, definitely not sick ones. But he will ask us at times to give up things that are very precious to us. Maybe blessings that he has given to us to see if we're willing to let them. Is it more about the blessing or is it about the blesser? Is it more about the gifts or the giver? That's something a lot of Christians need to ask themselves today. I think it was Tozer who said, and I'll paraphrase, look, if God said to you right now, you will never get another blessing from me, the only blessing you will ever get from this point on is to know your name is written in heaven because you've given your life to my son. Would that be enough for a lot of Christians? Would it be for me? I'm sure most, if not all of you in this room would say it's enough for me. But again, too many Christians who have been sold a bill of goods, where they've been told that, look, God exists to make you happy. He exists to give you all kinds of material things, to prosper your business and so on. I'm wondering if when God told them, look, I want you to take a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, and there I want you to kill your son. I'm wondering if for a moment Abraham contemplated disobeying God's command, like Jonah did many years later, when God says, go to Nineveh, and tell them they got 40 days until judgment comes, what did Jonah do? He hated the Ninevites. These were the Assyrians. He hated them. They're brutal. You know, I don't want to tell them to repent. I want them to get blasted. See, he runs the other way. You know? You remember that whole story. God's got a way of kind of, you know, putting the pressure on to get us to do his will. All right? But I'm wondering if just for a moment Abraham thought, I'm not doing that. I'm getting out of here. I'm taking the kid with me. We're going, you know? I don't know. I don't really see that from the passage, though. I really don't. I mean, how did Abraham handle this? Well, verse 3, Abraham what? Rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. See how many ands there are in that verse? 
That's in, in Hebrew what is called a polysyndodon. When you see a, a, a sentence that's, that's hooked together by all these ands, it signifies immediate, unbroken obedience. He didn't waver a bit, okay? He rose early to start out to do what God commanded him. He didn't linger. He didn't drag his feet like Lot had done when God told him, look, get out of here. Get out of Sodom. I'm going to bomb this place. And what did Lot do? He lingered. He dragged his The angels had to grab him and pull him out of Sodom. Not Abraham. You read this and you go, wow. God tells him, go on a three-day journey and offer your son Isaac on Mount Moriah. What does he do? He gets up very early and does exactly what God told him to do. We don't see here any, uh, you know, to say that Abraham obeyed with enthusiasm might be overstating it a little bit, but we definitely don't see any weeping on Abraham's part. We don't see him pleading with God to change his mind. Oh, please, God, don't do this. God tells him to go to Mount Moriah and offer Isaac there to him. He got up early and began his journey to obey what God had said. You say, how could Abraham have obeyed God so unemotionally, so robotically? Well, <laughs> I don't think Abraham acted like a robot without feelings, I'm sure. He was experiencing a good amount of anxiety as he made his way toward Mount Moriah, knowing exactly what he was going to have to do to his own son once he got there. He wasn't a robot. But as, as I said earlier, 30 years has passed. And during those 30 years, Abraham's faith has grown, especially from the lapses that we read about in chapters 12 and 20. When famine, chapter 12, runs on to Egypt. Tells Pharaoh that Sarah is his sister. 25 years later, okay, he goes down to the uh, area that a king named Abimelech lived in. Again, tells Abimelech that Sarah was his sister. He basically lied because he didn't trust God to protect him. He figured, well, though she's so beautiful, it'll kill me to take her. I got to lie. I got to, you know, whenever we get into that situation, well, God's not able, so I have to lie or whatever, cheat or whatever, you're, you're in a bad place. You're in a bad place. God is always able. God is always with us. You never have to take matters into your own hands. If you do, you're only going to mess things up. You see, in those earlier years, Abraham didn't have a lot of faith. He was growing in his faith, as we all are, right? But now, 50 years has passed from chapter 12 when God first called Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldees. 50 years. It's a long time. And during the course of that time, Abraham grew. He grew. He grew in his faith. And as of this point here in chapter 22, he is now operating out of a deep abiding faith in the promises and faithfulness of God. You see, he remembers that God promised him that through Isaac, he would have so many descendants, they would be innumerable, like the stars in the heavens. And yet at this point, Isaac had no children. In fact, he wasn't even married yet. He won't get married until chapter 24. So Abraham is no doubt thinking to himself, listen, if God wants me to kill Isaac, okay. But for him to fulfill his promise to me, to give me all these descendants through Isaac, when Isaac has no children yet, if God wants me to kill him, okay, but then God is going to have to raise him from the dead to fulfill his promise. You say, well, Phil, are you sure not reading a little too much into the passage? Turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. The great hall of faith chapter. We studied it for about three years, didn't we? No, it wasn't quite that long, but we, we studied it for a while. Let's pick it up in verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So right here it tells us that Isaac was the seed. He, he was the one through which Messiah would come. He was the one through which Abraham would have all these descendants. As of this point in Genesis 22, Isaac didn't have any kids. So if God's going to bring so many kids through Isaac that they would be innumerable, Abraham's descendants, and God wants me to kill him, then God's going to have to raise him from the dead. And that's why I believe Abraham could act so... See, this is where his faith had grown. 
He didn't ask, well, how's God going to raise him from the dead? We, we do that, right? God says, I'm going to do this. Oh, but how? It's not your concern how, okay? Moses, the people want me. Tomorrow I'm going, to, I'm going to give them so much meat it's going to come out of their nostrils after a while. How are you going to do that, Lord? I mean, we kill all the animals in the camp. We couldn't feed that many people meat. He said, Moses, am I not the Lord? Is anything too hard for me? And you remember the story. The next day God brought the quails, you know, and through the camp and just about the right height for batting practice. And they were batting these quails all day long and piling them up and skinned them and made quail jerky and just were living it up until God says, you know what, he judged them for their carnality. But again, we don't have to figure out how God's going to do it. We just need to have his promise and rejoice that he's promised to do it. That's what faith is. Faith is seeing things as if they were fulfilled when yet they haven't been fulfilled. And rejoicing, because I have God's promise, right? So Genesis 22, verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Even as God the Father lifted up his eyes in eternity past and saw Calvary, the place where his son would be lifted up afar off. So now Abraham does the same thing. You know, Paul the Apostle says something about the gospel that we really need to bring in here. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to point something out that a lot of people have, a, have trouble with, okay? It comes out of 1 Corinthians 15. It's about the gospel. Paul says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So if you, you know, walk the aisle and pray the prayer and say, I'm a Christian now, and then hang out with other Christians for a while, come to church, but, you know, six months or a year, they're off back in the world doing their own thing. They never have another desire to open a Bible or fellowship with God's people ever again. Obviously, they didn't really receive into their heart. All right, They heard, they thought they believed, but they never brought any forth any fruit. So Paul is basically saying, look, if you really believed, if you haven't believed in vain is the idea, then you'll hang in there and you will grow and so on. He says in verse 3, though, for I, deliver, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, when he says according to the Scriptures, what's he talking about? Our Old Testament, right? Because that was the scriptures they had back. The New Testament wasn't written yet. Paul was in the process of writing it, most of it. But when he talks about that Jesus Christ died according to our, for our sins according to the scriptures, he's got the Old Testament in mind. And that he was buried, and that, listen, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The question is, where in the Old Testament did it predict Messiah would die and on the third day would rise again. Well, many believe it was right here in Genesis chapter 22 in type. In type. You see, it took Abraham three days when God said to him, go to Mount Moriah and there I want you to offer Isaac to me. You have to understand, in the rabbinic mind, the rabbis believed at that moment, in Abraham's heart, Isaac died. He was as good as dead. So in Abraham's mind and heart, the moment God said, take your son and kill him, in Abraham's mind and heart, Isaac was dead. He made a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. As he went up to the top of the mount, as we're going to see in a moment, and began to offer Isaac to the Lord, God stopped him. God stopped him. And at that point, Isaac, in the mind of Abraham, was resurrected. So we believe that when Paul says that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, he had Genesis 22 in mind. And this is what the writer of the Hebrews meant when he said that Abraham believed God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Now, Abraham believed, God, if you want me to go through with this and you want me to kill my son, literally kill him, then you're going to have to literally raise him from the dead. God stopped him. And so at that point, Abraham, or Isaac was resurrected, but not literally, he's resurrected figuratively. That's what the writer says, uh, that God was able to raise him up 
even from the dead, from which he also received him, listen, in a figurative sense. So he's telling us that in the mind of Abraham, Isaac was dead when God told him to kill him. Three days later, he gets to Mount Moriah, begins to offer Isaac. God stops him. At that point, he received him back to life in a figurative sense. Verse 5, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, the word lad is the same Hebrew word used in verse 3 for the two young men that accompanied Abraham and Isaac to Mount Moriah. The Hebrew word was used really of men in their 20s or even 30s. I bring this up because, you know, all the Sunday school pictures that you've ever seen, right? Where Abraham has got Isaac by the hand and he's leading him up to Mount Moriah. How old does Isaac look in those pictures? Eight, nine, somewhere around there. And I'm, I'm imagining that the uh, artist was drawing from verse 5 where it talked about the lad. The lad and I will go yonder. And so in their minds, they're thinking lad means a young boy. But the Hebrew word actually means a young man, a young man. I believe Isaac was about 33 years old at this time, the same age Jesus was when he climbed that very same mount 2,000 years later, same mount, Mount Calvary. And again, it reads, And Abraham said to, the, said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go. Yeah. So he, he brings two servants two young men with him. He tells them to wait at the base of the mount. You guys can't go any farther. I'm going to take Isaac. We're going to go to the top of the mount alone together. At this point, J. Vernon McGee says something I think was very important, very insightful. He said, and I quote, the transaction that is going to take place is between the father and the son, between Abraham and Isaac. And actually, God shut man out at the cross. At the time of the darkness, at high noon, man was shut out. The night had come when no man could work. And during those last three hours, that cross became an altar on which the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was offered. The transaction was between the Father and the Son on that cross. Man was outside and was not participating at all. The picture is the same here. It is Abraham and Isaac alone, end quote. Very insightful and very true. Well, again, notice verse 5. He says, you know, we're going to go and, and worship, and we will come back to you. Again, it's obvious that Abraham believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead if the Lord had made him go through with this command to take Isaac and offer him there on Mount Moriah. Now, let me just stop and say this, because a lot of people are horrified when they read for the first time Genesis 22, and they read how God said to Abraham, take your son and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And especially skeptics and unbelievers, they read this, and they, and they use verses like this to write off the Bible. How could you even believe in a book or a God that wants human sacrifice? You show me one place in the Bible where God actually asked for human sacrifice. It's not there, okay? In fact, as the people of Israel got into the pagan practices in the promised land of the Canaanites that they had dispossessed, they were offering their children to Molech. And God at one point said, you have engaged in the most horrendous practices, even sacrificing your children to pagan deities, something that never even came into my mind, nor have I ever asked you to do. So God never asked for human sacrifice. The pagan deities, yes, they often sacrificed human beings to them. Our God is the only God that never asked us to offer ourselves to him as a true sacrifice, but he became a sacrifice for us. That was absolutely unheard of in the ancient world. The Greeks had deified everything. Okay, everything they had deified. I mean, you, 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 if you can think of it, they deified. They deified all the elements of nature, the planets, the stars, everything in the heavens. They deified all the emotions. They deified animals and insects and everything. And they believed the gods were apatheia, apathetic. So did the Romans. The gods didn't care about people. You had to appease the gods. You had to bring them sacrifices and, and, and offerings because if you made them angry, they would kill you as soon as they look at you because they didn't care. 
And don't even bother asking the gods to help you with a certain predicament you're in. They were apathetic. They didn't care about human suffering. So when the gospel went out, and the pagans began to hear of a God who didn't require them to offer humans to them as sacrifices, but a God who offered himself as a sacrifice, that was revolutionary. That was something they had never heard before. It really opened a lot of hearts. But our God has never, ever, at any time, asked us to offer him human sacrifices. Now, something else that's significant. In verse 5, we have the first place in the Bible where the word worship appears. In hermeneutics, which is the, law, the science of Bible interpretation, there is a law called the law of first mention. What is it? It's a law that says whenever a concept, a significant concept like worship or marriage or atonement or something like that, the very first place it appears in the Bible, study that passage because it becomes a prototype for understanding that concept throughout the rest of the, of the Bible. It's interesting to me that the very first time the word worship appears in the Bible, it isn't associated with singing, it's associated with sacrifice. You know, when people think of worship today, what do we think of? We think of singing to God. That's part of it, beautiful part of it. We had some wonderful worship tonight. I love to worship God with singing. But that in and of itself is not the extent of true worship. It's a small part of it, but it's not the extent of it. In fact, David expressed the heart of true worship when he said, I will not give to God an offering, uh, worship. I will not worship God with that which costs me nothing. David understood that to truly worship God, it involves sacrifice, which means you have to give something that costs you. Didn't Mary of Bethany exemplify this in John 12? When she broke open the alabaster flask of fragrant oil, oil of spikenard, very costly, that little flask was worth about a year's wage. She broke it open because it was sealed. You couldn't un unscrew a top. You had to break it open, which meant you had to use all of it. And in those days, they would save things like precious ointments or uh, jewels or even clothing as a hedge against hard times. These were valuable things. There was no uh, IRAs or stock options or anything like that. So they had to invest themselves in um, uh, precious ointments and perfumes or gold, silver, precious stones, even clothing, as I said. And Mary, it seems, had kept this oil of spikenard for her as her dowry. Her father was dead. He couldn't give a dowry to the man who proposed to her. In that culture, if you were dow dowry without a penny, <laughs> you had no dowry, uh, most of the time a guy wouldn't pay any interest. She was keeping that oil of spikenard probably as her dowry. By giving it up for Jesus, it pretty much meant she was going to remain single the rest of her life. But that was okay to Mary because I believe she loved Jesus so much, she already considered herself married to him. He was her only love anyways. But she broke open that flask of oil of spikenard and poured it all on Jesus to anoint him for burial. That was an act of true worship. You say, well, what can I give? I want to really worship God. What can I give? You know what you can give? Yourself. Remember what Paul said? I'll read it to you out of the NIV. Romans 12, verse 1. Listen. He said, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Listen. This is your spiritual act of worship. You want to worship God today in the New Covenant? Then you know what? We become the sacrifice. Our very lives are then offered to God each day. We lay ourselves on the altar of sacrifice each day and say, God, I am a living sacrifice. Take me today and do with me as you will. My whole goal is to bring you glory. Bring you glory. Well, Genesis 22, verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. It's interesting. Isaac carried the wood on his back up Mount Moriah the same way Jesus carried the wooden cross up on his back up Mount Calvary. Verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. He said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but... Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? You see, guys, Isaac and the other young guys, the other two servants, 
They knew that Abraham said, we were going to go and worship God. Well, right away in their minds, they knew that worship, right, meant a sacrifice, which involved the shedding of blood. And so Isaac wants to know, right, well, we got the knife and the wood and the fire, but we have to shed blood. We have to give a sacrifice. Where's the lamb for the offering? Well, understand this is the first place in the Old Testament where the word lamb appears. The first place in the New Testament where the word lamb appears is in John 1.29. But let me read to you the end of verse 7 and verse 8 again. Where is the lamb for the offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. I like the way the King James Version translates verse 8 because I believe it communicates with Abraham. It communicates what Abraham is actually saying and actually believed. In the King James Version, verse 8 reads, And Abraham said, my, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. And of course, if you read John 1.29, it says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Guys, it's interesting that the first time the word lamb appears in the New Testament it answers the question of the first time the word lamb appears in the Old Testament. Where is the lamb for the offering? Behold the lamb. As John pointed to Jesus. Verse 8, so the two of them went together. Um, the prophet Amos said, can two walk together unless they are agreed? I believe that Abraham told Isaac on his way up to Mount Moriah, son, you're the sacrifice. I know he said God will provide himself a sacrifice, and that's true. Because we're going to see, I believe Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. But I do think that somewhere before the top of Mount Moriah, Abraham told Isaac, son, you're the sacrifice that God has told me to sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Now, guys, as I said, Isaac at this time was about 33 years old, which means that Abraham was 133 years old. Isaac could, I believe, could have easily overpowered his father at any time. But instead, he submitted to the will of his father, which meant, listen, he was a willing sacrifice. Just as Jesus submitted to the will of his father when he said, no one takes my life from me, I give it freely for the sheep. Also in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father three times. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And of course, after it was all over with, and Jesus had gone to the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended back to the Father. Years later, Paul the Apostle comes on the scene, and he writes in the, uh, in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 8, about Jesus. He says, being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus willingly submitted to his Father's will. Genesis 22, verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And I, as I read this, I, I, you know, with each step of Mount Moriah, and with every task he did before he could offer Isaac, I believe Abraham's heart must have been breaking more and more. I mean, don't get me wrong. He trusted God, as we just said. He trusted God. But that didn't mean, listen, he enjoyed the thought of inflicting pain and even death on his son. He didn't enjoy that thought. Just like God may have to subject us to some pain and heartache. He does it with tears, I'm convinced. Jesus, it says of Jesus, he despised the cross. He, he despised the shame of the cross. But he looked, he looked ahead to the glory that would come afterward. Guys, God is all about making our eternity the best possible eternity he can give us. And if he has to sacrifice some temporal comfort and ease and even happiness to allow us to suffer, to give us the best eternity possible, he'll do that because he loves us. But we have to remember, even when he puts us through pain and suffering, he's, he never enjoys that. 
It breaks his heart because he loves us. But sometimes he has to put us through these things, like you may have to put a child through surgery. Because if you don't, that child will die. The child might be too young to realize why you're subjecting him or her to this suffering. They may even think you're a cruel parent, but you know why you're doing it. Years ago, one of our pastors, his name is John, Calvary guy, told a true story about his little girl who was only about three years old at this time. Somehow she had developed developed an infection and it caused a, um, oh, I I guess a, a, a very large, what I'll call a pus sack on her neck. And it was really infected, full of poison. Took her to the doctor, and the doctor says, John, we're going to have to lance this right now. You're going to have to hold her down. For some reason, she couldn't have any anesthesia or Novocaine. So John had to hold his little three-year-old down as the doctor took that knife, and he actually cut that thing and released all the... She was screaming, crying. She got so upset, and the pain, I guess, was so bad, she eventually just passed out. So the doctor bandaged her up. John put her in the car. She was still out. And he prayed all the way home, well, God, thank you, that's over with. About four days went by, and the thing started to come up again. He had to take her back to the doctor, and as soon as she saw the doctor walk in the room, she started screaming. She looked at her father with this look. He said, I'll never forget. This look of terror, why are you allowing this man to hurt me? You're my father. You're supposed to love me. That was the look that she gave him. It it was a look of horror and confusion. Why is my father, who has always loved me and done good for me, why is he allowing this man to hurt me? Well, the same thing. She screamed and screamed. The doctor had to cut the thing open. She finally passed out. And on the way home, John says, I was really upset. And I said, God, why did you allow this? Why did you allow my daughter to have to go through this pain? And he says, God spoke to me very clearly. He says, John, I love you. And sometimes I've got to put you through pain, just like I put my son through pain. You have to understand that sometimes as a father, we have to do things to our children because we love them that will cause them some pain, but ultimately will be for their good. I needed to put you through this so that you would never forget, that you would never forget, that even when you're going through pain, I'm with you, I love you. Do you know 20 years later, that little girl who was walking with the Lord, a beautiful woman of God, hit an ice patch one winter's day, skidded off the road, hit a lamppost, and died instantly. The very same place where John's wife, a few years earlier, had hit a patch of black ice, skidded off the road, and died too. This particular pastor has been used by God all over the world. I think it was Tozer who said, God cannot use a man or woman greatly until he first hurts them deeply. Carnal Christians, they would be furious to hear me talk like this. They can't get their mind around something like that. This is only for mature believers who understand the cross. These are hard lessons to learn. But Paul says if we don't suffer with Christ, we don't belong to Christ. Thank goodness our Heavenly Father only allows us to suffer for a while. Remember what Peter said? But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, listen, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He puts us through the trial, but only for so long, backs us off, you know, puts his arms around us, reminds us how much he loves us, and often shows us why he put us through those things, because he has a greater ministry for us. Well, Genesis 22, verse 10, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Now, at this point, we really ought to bring in something James says. Turn to James 2. Because James talks about this very incident. It says in James 2, starting in verse 21, 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Uh-oh, hang on to that thought. When he offered Isaac his son on the altar, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Ooh. You know, Martin Luther really had a hard time with that. In fact, he rejected the book of James flat out as being non-canonical, uninspired. Because he thought James was teaching salvation by works. Well, no, he was just saying in a slightly different way what Paul the Apostle said in his writings. Or what the Lord Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. So we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved unto good works. The good works is what is the fruit that bears witness of the fact that I truly believe in my heart. Jesus is truly my Lord. And that's really all James is saying. He was saying that, look, Abraham demonstrated true faith because he didn't just say he believed. He trusted that God, if God made him go through with this offering of Isaac, God was going to raise him from the dead because God's promises had to be fulfilled. God had to give him descendants through Isaac. And James is saying, look, his faith, coupled with the fruit, indicated Abraham had true saving faith. I just want to key in for one second on this statement in verse 12, where the angel of the Lord says, now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. Um, There are those that don't believe that God knows everything, as I just said earlier. And so he tests us to learn, listen, what's in our hearts and whether or not we're going to obey him in various situations, because he says no. He has to test us to find out. That's what they believe. That's ridiculous. I understand that from verses like this in chapter 22, verse 2, I, I can understand why people might come to that conclusion. But you don't take one verse and make a whole theology out of it. You've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, we know that Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, uh, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Who can know it? But God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. You can't search the heart unless you can see into the heart, unless you can know the heart. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 9, verse 4? It says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, talking about the Pharisees sitting around the table with these Pharisees, you know their thoughts. You know what they were thinking. He said, why do you think evil in your hearts? I mean, if he didn't know what was in their hearts, he wouldn't have been able to say that. I'll give you one more. There's probably hundreds we could look at remember psalm 139 verses 23 and 4 what did david say search me O god and what know my heart try me and know my anxieties and see if there is if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting david said i don't even know my own heart okay i don't even know my own heart i don't know the wickedness of my but lord you know my heart will you search it and tell me what's in it if there's garbage in there i want to confess it i want to get it right with you so God knows the heart. See, in verse 12, God isn't saying, oh, now I, now I see what's going on. Now I know that, Abraham, you really fear me, which means reverence me and so on. No, that's not what God's saying. He is speaking, listen, big word, anthropomorphically. What does that mean? Is this that when God uses human terms to describe something he's done so we can relate to him? God knows everything. God cannot learn anything. He's omniscient. He knows all. But he communicates to us on our level oftentimes, you know, so that we understand what he's saying. God isn't learning anything. This test was not for God's benefit. It was for Abraham's benefit. Well, let's finish up. Verse 12, once again, he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 13, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering uh, instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. In the Hebrew, it's Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Guys, this tells me that Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. He says, look, This whole thing we just did, me offering Isaac on this mount, this is a foreshadowing, Abraham was saying, 
This is prophetic of something that was going to happen in the future. What's something? I believe Abraham knew the gospel. I believe Abraham knew because God had revealed it to him with the gospel. We've talked about this. Abraham knew the gospel. You say, where are you getting that from? Galatians 3, verse 8. In the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Paul said, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God preached the gospel to Abraham. Many believe it was in the stars. Some have called it the gospel in the stars. You can go back and get the studies we've done on that if you'd like. Come up and see me afterwards, and I'll direct you to those studies. But remember what uh, Jesus said in John 8, 56, to the Pharisees, he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. When did Abraham see my day? My day, Jesus said. Well, many believe right here in Genesis 22, in type. Abraham knew it was type. Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. All right, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Now, this tells us conclusively that this angel of the Lord was, in fact, the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Jehovah. And that the Lord had entered into, as we've already talked about, a unilateral, unconditional covenant with Abraham and his descendants to give them the land and to give them other blessings, which they could not forfeit because it wasn't dependent on their faithfulness. It was a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And you can get, go back in chapter 12 and get the study. We went into that in detail. Verse 16. Again, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies." And in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Again, the seed is there, the word seed there in the singular is once again a reference to Jesus Christ, as we have already pointed out in Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham, Paul said, and his seed, singular, capital S, where the promise is made. He does not say into seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. God is saying, in your seed, Abraham, in other words, in Messiah, who will come from your own loins, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Yes, because the Messiah would open his arms to all the people of this world, of every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed because every family on the face of the earth will have somebody in heaven. Every family that's ever lived, God has said, I'm going to save at least one. All the families of the earth shall be blessed because Messiah was not just the Jewish Savior, he was the Savior of all mankind. Now, verse 19 is a kick. All right, guys? It's a kick. We're just about done. So Abraham, notice, Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. The question is, where's Isaac? Did Abraham leave him up on top of the mount? I mean, it says Abraham returned. Doesn't say and Abraham and Isaac returned. Where's Isaac? Well, look, I'm sure that Isaac came down from Mount Moriah with Abraham. But the Holy Spirit, writing through Moses, chose to leave him out of the narrative. In fact, he disappears from the record until we see him coming to meet his bride in chapter 24. Which, when you understand that Isaac is a type of Christ, it sends shivers up and down your spine to think the Holy Spirit manipulates the narrative to fit the type. No, he's not lying. Isaac is with Abraham by inference. It's just that he leaves his name out. So Isaac disappears from the record, and we don't see him again until he's coming to meet his bride in chapter 24. You know, I don't know. Skeptics would say, so what? I look at that and go, so God. I I just see the, the fingerprint of God all over this chapter. And that is one of the big ways I see how the Holy Spirit actually manipulates the narrative to fit the type of Isaac being a type of Christ. Okay, let's finish. Verse 20. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also was born children to your brother Nahor. Huz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. So Huz and Buzz. 
Okay. Kemuel, uh, the father of Aram, uh, Keset, Hazo, Pildash, Zidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, uh, Gaim, uh, Thahash, and Maaka. Not that you're going to ever remember those names, nor should you have to. The only name that's important out of that whole list is what? Rebecca, Rebecca, because she is the one who becomes the bride of Isaac and the one the story now focuses in on as we shift from Abraham to more of Isaac and his bride, Rebecca. So uh, God willing, we'll get to that next week. Hopefully we'll get through chapter 23 and 4. Boy, you talk about picking up the typology in chapter 24. It's awesome. So we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, this is a supernatural book we are studying. Your word, Lord, is truly uh, God-breathed. And, Lord, we thank you that you have placed in here for our learning such incredible lessons, so many of which, Lord, revolve around our Savior in type, and shadow, picture, prophecy. The volume of the book is written of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you so loved us that you gave your only begotten Son, whom you loved, to die on Calvary's cross for sinners such as we. Because without the death of our Savior, we could not be saved. We would spend an eternity separated from you in hell. And you so loved us, you didn't want us to go to hell forever. So you sent your only begotten Son. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We ask you to continue to bless our studies in this incredible book. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.